0: The podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his calling profession. We are in our study of the New Testament book of Second Timothy, and the last six lessons were an important addition taken from this book and gives us information that is important to us as Christians. Class teacher Doug Brady has done a wonderful job so far in this teaching, and more is yet to come. In fact, today's lesson is one that everyone, and I mean everyone, should hear and memorize. That's the good thing about these recorded lessons. You can listen once or many times over as you learn more about the future, and most importantly, the near rapture of the church. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Each week, our class grows as people come in and find a teacher who is really interesting and level. He spends many, many hours each week preparing these lessons and does all the searching that most of us would have a hard time doing. If you are in the area, we invite you to visit the Believer's Bible class real soon. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin this very interesting lesson, taken from Second Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 and 13. Have your Bible available and ready as he points out Bible passages from both Old and New Testaments. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. We have been working our way
1: through 2 Timothy, and we stopped for a minute because of what it talks about in the chapter 3 of 2 Timothy of apostasy. And we did a little mini series on apostasy, understanding the characteristics of apostasy, that it's coming, and that what we have a responsibility to do in the face of that apostasy. But today, We want to answer, try to answer a question about the last days. We've talked about, you know, what's going to go on in the church in the last days, but are there any signs or markers of the last days so that we could come to an understanding? Are we a thousand years away from that? Or are we a hundred years away from that or 10 years away from that or possibly one year or one month? No, not one month. Uh, how long is it to September? Maybe four, five months. But be that as it may, so before we start, let's bless the lesson. I've asked Martin to stand up and bless the lesson for us. Heavenly Father, I stand in your presence. I humbly to before you. I thank you, Father, for what you've done in my life and in the people's lives that are in this world. We might not understand
0: everything that has happened but as we listen to your word and to your speech, may you bless him to say the things that you want us to hear, and keep from him the things that he might want to say that you don't want him to say. And we pray for him now, Father, that as he teaches us, that we
1: would hear and obey for it's your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people say. Amen. Thank you, Martin. Let's start again with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, and evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, look at this a second. It's obviously important. We're going to focus on this phrase, in the last days. We've talked about the difficult times that will come in some respect. Notice who evil men And imposters, but where will those evil men and imposters be? Will they be in the world? No, they will be in the church. That's where the apostasy is coming from. Now they've been sneaking in, uh, coming in. I am very concerned, and I've tried to share these concerns with some. That what is going to we can see something that's going to happen to our church. For example, a man comes in and he hears it and they checks the box and they call him and they they say, are you saved? And he says, yes. And he tells them about a salvation assurance, true or false. We don't know. They say, fine. Two or three weeks later, another man does the same thing. And now he's a member of the church. They even go through the first step classes and then six months later, nine months later, According to what the plan is, they go, they say, we'd like to meet with you, pastor. And they meet, we'd like you to marry us. No, don't. we don't do that. Well, if you don't do that, we're going to sue you. We've got uh, the southern leadership down here, and we've got the people up in Minnesota. They're ready to file a lawsuit in federal court here. You won't let your members be married in a legal marriage. We have to be vigilant and in concern. And we need to see that, and that's the kind of thing that is happening. Now, the apostasy is coming, we understand that, but are there any signs? Well, let's look at that question when it was asked by the disciples. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, Jesus is now sitting on the Mount of Olives. And what is he fixing to deliver? The Olivet Discourse. Now, some people don't understand that. The Olivet Discourse is a discourse delivered on the Mount of Olives. It's not Jesus telling us all of it. So I want you to make sure that you understand that as we get through here and notice what it says. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when all these things will happen, what will be the sign of your coming, and what is the end of the age? There's two words I want us to unpack there so we can see. The first one is one that a, a lot of you are familiar with because you grew up in a Baptist church. It is, in my opinion, the most misunderstood Greek word in the Baptist church. It's the word that's translated here, sign. It's the Greek word, semeon. And what it means is a sign or a mark or a token that someone has left or provided to tell us something to tell us so they're asking what's the sign the sign of what these things coming at the end look at in particular the last word in the new american standard it's aged can somebody tell me what that word is in the king james we don't have anybody with king james here today oh we may be not okay well Uh, We can go on. I guess it's not important what's in the King James. Come on. What? The end of the world? End of the world. What this is talking about, this word age, is the Greek word aeon. We get an English word from it, eon. And it's a period of time is what we ought to stand it to be. What would be another word for that? Dispensation. Now, I'm not sure they understood what dispensation they're talking about. When they're talking here, which dispensation are they in? The dispensation of Israel or the Jewish dispensation? Now, and let's just so we have a good understanding. What is the marker of a dispensation in the scripture? I'm convinced that a dispensation is... Where is where God has chosen a particular group of people to disseminate the gospel. And the Jewish dispensation, who was responsible for disseminating the gospel? Jews. The Jews. How good of a job did they do? Horrible. You take out Jonah, and it's really horrible. Now, the next dispensation is what? <laughs> the dispensation of the church or the dispensation of grace, call it either thing, the church has done a little better job than the Jews. But we are fighting a losing battle. There's more and more people, and less and less people per capita, who know the Lord. Now, one of the things I've asked our class to do is pray for a, a giant revival, so that that will change. And we can do that, but I want you to understand... They want to know this sign, and Jesus says there are signs, there are markers, there are tokens of the last day. As I have studied the scripture, I find 10 easily identifiable that I want to share with you. Does that mean that's all there are? No, not necessarily. But I'm going to share with you 10 this morning. The first one is very easy. It's the apostasy coming. We've been studying that. We've been looking at it. Let's look one more time at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Notice here, Paul uses the phrase latter times. It's the same thing as the last days. And this concept is, this is when the apostasy is coming from. Notice, fall away from or to depart from the faith. The noun form of that word is apostasia, from which we get our word apostasy. This is the verb form, aphistami. It means exactly the same thing. And that's what it's talking about, the apostasy, it's coming. And it's a falling away or departing from what? The faith. Now, can the world depart from the faith? No, only someone who has the faith can depart from it and so it's in the church and we need to see that's the first sign i want you to see but that's only the first of nine others the second an end of morality integrity and character that is that the character and morality of the people on this earth will so seriously decline they're going to become either animals or barbarians in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 5, it's going to talk about those type of people who are in the church. I want to read to you just from chapters verses 2 and 4 where it starts out this way, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God if you're lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure, is there any sin you won't do? No. It's wide open. And and you will just go from bad to worse. And the thing is that sin at first is satisfying, but it's never satisfying enough. If you, And I'm going to speak plainly here, I think everybody here is an adult. And if my wife thinks I'm too graphic, then she'll tell me on the way to lunch, and I'm sure it'll affect my eating and digestion. But be that as it may, if you look at a history that we have seen in our nation, back in the 60s, what started? Sexual revolution. You know, before that, it used to be Sexual immorality was practiced to a degree in monogamy. In other words, you would either live with a woman, but she would be the only woman that you would be with, or you would find another woman who you prefer to your wife and divorce your wife. And in the 50s, that's when divorce started taking hold so strongly and Texas succumbed and allowed no-fault divorce. You know, see, it used to be in our state, that you couldn't get divorced unless there was fault. Adultery, abandonment, something like that. But we succumbed to that, and so, but still it was more on a one. but then came the 60s. And you see, that didn't satisfy us enough what we had, so now it's the free love revolution. And it's free love, what does that mean? You ought to be able to love whoever you want, whenever you want. What did we sing songs about? Oh, love the one you're with. If you can't be, then love the one you're with. And you see that growing. And then comes, that's not enough. And now homosexuality is becoming rampant in our nation. And nobody sees it's wrong anymore. And it's just the right thing to do. Have we gone another step from there? Yes, we have. Pedophilia. And... There is a move, you may not have heard about it because of who you listen to, there is a move that's saying, that should be legalized the same way homosexuality was legalized. And pedophilia, and this concept of consent, no consent from a minor, is going to be out the window. That's the next step, and it just happens, and happens, and happens, and it's horrible. In Romans 1, 18-32, we saw this progression when we studied that, and the end result is a depraved mind, a depraved mind. Now, a depraved means morally corrupt, morally corrupt. Have you ever, on your computer, I'm taking that most of you use computers, you go to a file, it says, cannot open, corrupt, files Corrupt. A bad thing to say, especially if the file's important. But that file won't work at all, because it's corrupt. That mind won't work at all because it's morally corrupt. It will not work the way it's supposed to work at all. And we need to see that. I think one of the things we see, Satan is trying to steal our sexuality. And we, in America, are saying, go ahead. Take it from us. Mark? Yeah, I just, I don't know where I got this from somebody one time, but uh, in verse 4, it says, lovers of pleasure. I look here and said, this person said, if you see this, just that one trait, then all the other things will happen. They will. Because, yep, and you keep looking for something to satisfy, and you will only be satisfied for a little while. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you sin is not exciting or fun for a short period of time. I've been doing some research on this in these passages. And there's an early Christian leader by the name of Irenaeus. I don't know how many of you have read or familiar with Irenaeus. He's really a second century. He was born in uh, 120 and died in 220. I mean, pardon me, 202. But he wrote the following and there's an interesting take on this you might see. And there is therefore in this beast, here he's referring to the Antichrist, when he comes a recapitulation made of all sorts of iniquity and every deceit in order that all apostate power flowing into and being shut up in him. In other words, a religious people who were available at that time will all be sucked in to his one world religion is what Irenaeus is trying to say here, flowing into and being shut up in him, may be sent to the furnace of fire. In other words, they're gonna all end up in hell, and the hell's fires. Fittingly, therefore, because all of those who follow him are gonna end up in hell, fittingly, therefore, shall be his name possesses the number six hundred and sixty-six. Now, we see that at the end of chapter 13 in the book of Revelation. Since he sums up in his person all of the co-mixture of wickedness which took place previous to the deluge due to the apostasy of the angels. Interesting. Does he think that there are Nephilim being progenerated by angelic beings intermarrying with human? Yes, he does. They try to tell you, oh, that's just something that, Came up a hundred years ago. The early Christians in church, they didn't believe in that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah? Of course they did. Of course, the one who really believed in it was Noah. But for Noah was 600 years old when the deluge came upon the earth, sweeping away the rebellious earth for the sake of the most infamous generation which lived in the times of Noah. He refers to that generation as infamous. Now, notice he's making... comparison here. He's putting over here the number of the Antichrist's name 666. Now he says in the most infamous generation and God's judgment on it we had a man who at when he was 600 years old the deluge came. You keep that number in mind but we're going to have to add to it. And the Antichrist also sums up every error of devised idols since the flood together with the slaying of the prophets and the cutting off of the just. And by that image was set up by Nebuchadnezzar, which had indeed a height of 60 cubits with a breadth of six cubits on the count of, and he spells them differently through the translations, but we're going to say Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or if you understand them better, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they did not worship it, were cast into the furnace of fire, Pointing out prophetically by what happened to them the wrath against the righteous which shall arise at the time of the end. For the image taken as a whole was a prefiguring of this man's coming, decreeing that he would undoubtedly himself alone be worshipped by all men. And thus then, 600 years of Noah, in whose time the deluge occurred before the apostasy, and the number of cubits of the image for which the man was set up in the furnace, do indicate the number the name of that man in whom is concentrated the whole apostasy of 6,000 years. And unrighteousness, wickedness, and false prophecy, deception, for which sake a cataclysm of fire shall come upon the earth. Now... That's pretty wild. But I want you to notice something very interesting. How much time Don had passed approximately when he made this statement? So what he's talking about and when he's writing this is an earth at the time he wrote that's about 4,150 years old. But he's saying 6,000. Do you begin to see what I was noticing there?
0: Well, if you go with the Septuagint dates, it would have been 5,000 years
1: old. Okay. Well, they still still saying 6,000. But I want you to notice, sign number one, apostasy taking hold of the church, and number two, the end of morality, integrity, and character. Number three, widespread lawlessness. Now you may say, wait, is it two and three the same thing? No, they're not the same thing. The best way to understand it, two, is members or human beings. Three is the law, the government. Lawlessness of the government. And we see this when it's talking about the coming of the man of lawlessness. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, it says, Let no one deceive you. In other words, I want you to understand this. Don't anybody trick you. For it will not come to pass which is the rapture, unless the apostasy comes first. I, I take that back. It, comes, it will not come to pass. It's not the rapture. It's the tribulation, the coming of the tribulation, that seven-year period. For it will not come to pass unless the apostasy or the departure comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, you can ask the question, who is this man of lawlessness? Who is it? But... It says this, who, how do you know, he, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, that's what this man of lawlessness will do, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. Now that should clearly mark it for us, should it not? Because in the middle of the tribulation period, what will the Antichrist do? He will go into the temple of God. And proclaim himself as God and say, everybody in the world has to worship him. And you have to take his mark. Will it be voluntary worship? No. If you don't have the mark on your right hand or your forehead, you can't work. You can't own. You can't buy. You can't sell. You can't do anything without that mark. How are you going to live? The only ones that could survive is somebody who can run to the hills and not be found. But we'll talk about surveillance in a minute where it's going to be rather difficult not to be found. But let's read on.
0: I was just thinking about something going back to what Ernesto said, about the 6,000 years. It's just interesting to me that we are basically ending the 6,000th year of this
1: earth. You're right, Vera, and... just hung on the cross for six hours. You, you begin to see these things adding up, and we're going to go even farther, I think, uh, if we have time. Do, not, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now. So, what is he saying? The lawless one is going to be revealed, but he's being restrained. Who is restraining him? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So it's being prepared for him, this mystery of lawlessness. It's already happening. Only him who now restrains will do so until he is taken out. Taken out of the influence of this world. Who again is going to be taken out? The Holy Spirit. Spirit. Question. If the Holy Spirit is taken out, can I still remain behind? No, because the Holy Spirit indwells me. And indwells you. You will have to go to. Now, notice that revealing is when the tribulation starts. Does that mean the rapture is gonna occur before the tribulation? Oh, that would be pre trib, wouldn't it? That doesn't mean a mid trib or a post trib or a pre wrath or any of those other things, a last trumpet. None of those work according to this verse. And so you begin to see this. And what it's talking about is lawlessness. And there is restraining, which is holding back this deluge. But it's kind of like dam that's being held. And there's still stuff coming through. But it hadn't been allowed to just burst yet because he's restraining and holding it back. Let me ask you this. If you were to go back to the 1960s, most of us were alive kind of in the 1960s, I guess, late 1960s. Uh, would in our nation we ever allow people to burn down federal buildings and, and churches while police officers are over here watching it going on and do nothing? Never have allowed that. That's per se lawlessness. The government is telling them, you don't enforce the laws. do we ever think that in Dallas we would have a district attorney who would say, I'm not enforcing these laws? No, but that's lawlessness. Do we see it coming? All right, that's number three. Let's look at number four. There will be a prevailing presence of scoffers and mockers scoffers and mockers you know most of us know what the word mockers means but, but what about scoffers what 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 is what does scoffers mean well to understand it i think you need to look at it this way number one they will seek to intimidate others who they disagree with intimidation occurs first then from intimidation will come marginalization And they will be marginalized. That means pushed into a position where they have really no effect. Then will come confining or confinement, where they are confined to a certain area. And then will come elimination. The Jews, that happened with them. And it's going to happen to believers. They will be prohibited from expressing their faith. It will be illegal. Now, it's interesting, in a time of lawlessness, laws passed to deal with Christians will be enforced strictly. It's kind of like what's going on with the January 6th situation. All right, unless, of course, you were a federal officer who was involved in making that happen, it's not enforced against you on January 6th. But... You need to see that. Well, where in the Bible does it say there's going to be scoffers or mockers? Well, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it starts this way. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere way by means of reminder. I want you to be aware of this, Peter is saying, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by his apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lusts. It tells you the type of people they tie into the part of loss of morality, integrity, and character, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now. Now. We could talk about how that fire is going to happen when the time comes, but that would take too much of our time, so we're going to pass by something called the Colossian force. Some of you may remember it, but I want you to see, know that the last days mockers will come with their mocking, and they're going to say something like, what? This guy you're saying was God, he came 2,000 years ago, and he says he's coming back? How long are you going to wait? It's been 2,000 years. Wouldn't you think by 2,000 years he could get it together and come back for you? He is not coming. Well, do we maybe need to wait another 500 years? You'll be dead then. How long are you going to wait? How long proves he's not coming? You've got to be able to respond to that. You've got to be able to say, listen, time's nothing to him. Unlike you, you're trapped in time. He's not. When he's ready to come, he will come. Just like, and you need to be preparing, not for what I need to be concerned about, but for what you need to be concerned about. Because you see, it was water the first time, it's going to be fire the second time. You believe in global warming? I do too, just all at once. Not over a short period of time. Julie? This is marking these pastors that they're mocking also because they're telling us not to study prophecy not to get tired of that. <coughs> Well, you know, we don't want to study prophecy, Julie, because that makes sinners who we've asked to come to our church uncomfortable. Yes, it can scare people. We don't want that. Uh, now, what I said, I, I didn't really mean. You understand that. That was, that was a mocking statement by me, or to imitate mocking.
0: In many ways that's prophetic. It is prophetic because it's. Discussing evolution, that's called. That's
1: discussing uniformitarianism. Yep, that it all remains the same. Uniformitarianism is the key, one of the key uh, columns supporting evolution. That everything is just the same. Nothing happens out of the ordinary, so we can tell what's going on, and uh, that's very important to understand. Does the Scripture teach us uniformitarianism? No. And let me tell you. 99.9% of the people alive, I don't care how smart they are, do not know the effects that a worldwide flood would have on the earth. Geographically, geometrically, it's, it's just amazing. You need to read Dr. Morris's book, The Genesis Flood and Ice Epic. But number five, the makings of a one-world government... The makings of a one-world government. Going back again to the 50s and 60s in our nation, would America ever be part of that? Not just no. We would never do that. Nobody else is going to rule us, but us, Americans. Oh, my goodness, have time changed. And, you know, ever since the Tower of Babel, men have been trying to establish a one-world government. But up to now, they've all failed. But in the latter days or the end times, there will be a one world government and it will dominate world trade. It will dominate international politics and military might and it will lead mankind to the brink of extinction, the brink of extinction. They will view as their savior, but he will be anything but. How does God view these efforts and plans towards a one world government? Well, he talks about that. One of the places he does is in Psalm 2. Listen to what he says. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? They think they can do this. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now notice this. Who's he saying, David's saying, they're taking the stand against? The Father and the Son. Oh my. In the Old Testament. Yeah. The Father and the Son, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's not be bound by religion anymore. Let's not be bound by these rules that they say they've created for us. We're all men. We can do whatever we want. We're grown women. We can say whatever we want, and they shouldn't be in control, and that's just a myth. What is God's response when they say that? Look at that. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. They've been scoffing at him. He scoffs back. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in the fury. You see, in this psalm, David reveals God's disdain for national leaders, kings and dictators and despots who want to control everything. Notice the text indicates that God laughs and scoffs at them. To scoff is to laugh or talk about a person or an idea in a way that shows that you believe them to be stupid or silly. Now, there's some other words we could use there, but I refrained. Do we see any push towards globalism? Well, you know, it really started back in 1945. Let's look at some of these things that are going on here. in in nineteen okay in forty nine NATO was established. In seventy three, the Trilateral Commission. Some of you don't know what that is. That's a very serious and scary thing. In ninety five, the World Trade Organization is formed. And then in two thousand two, the FDA approved the VeriChip for human implanted microchip for electronic identification. What do you think that's a purpose for? Oh yeah. All right, keep going here. 2009, the U.S. turns control of the Internet over to ICANN. Why in the world did we do that? In 2019, the world now has a technology for facial recognition surveillance. It has the technology to know exactly what you say in your emails, in your texts, in your phone monitoring, on your telephone conversations, the ability to locate people by locating their phone Credit card data and tracking information. In other words, the means for complete world surveillance. Well, that would be something that the Antichrist would need, wouldn't it? For his one world government? Yep, they've got it. It's predicted that soon there will be one central monetary system and a digital currency. You don't have cash anymore. I have taken the position, I don't want to go to any more restaurants that say we, you can't pay in cash. My wife hates that because she loves going to Hilltop. They've reversed it. Well, good for them. We'll go back. Yes, Raymond. People know that Biden signed executive order for digital currency July twenty seventh, 2023. Right, and it's under everyone's radar. And how can he do that? And that's something the Congress has to do. He said that Biden has signed an executive order. Uh, providing for exec, uh, digital currency to come into place. Lawlessness, right, where you don't obey the Constitution. But listen, one more here I want you to see. The world organizations have come into being that seek to control them. How about have we been controlled in America at all by the World Health Organization? Oh, you begin to see. That's what we're moving towards, a one-world government. Number, uh, or wait, I want you to look at this, what God has told us about a one-world government that's coming. He says it's coming. There's no question about it. He long ago described it. He described it as feet of clay. Remember in Daniel chapter 2, it says this, the head of that statue was made of fine gold, the breast and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, and the legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And then he goes on to say, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and some will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seat of men and they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. That's God's description through the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar in his dream of this final time and kingdom. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 11, it says this, the same thing. The beast, which was and is not and is himself also an eighth, is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. What he's saying is he is going to be one of the world empires and he's coming and it's going to be a complete world domination by him. The 10 horns, which you saw are 10 Kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as Kings with the beast for one hour or better translated, I think for a short period of time, these have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. And these will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he of Lord of lords and King of Kings. And those who are with him will be, are they called and chosen and faithful. Interesting in this passage the things, the authority first, does it go to the Antichrist? No, it goes to the 10 Kings. Then the 10 Kings or King and their kingdoms will transfer the power to the Antichrist. You see that? Then he is going to fight against God, and who is going to deal with him? Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and will there be anybody with him when he comes? What does it say? Those there, and those who are with him are called, the called and chosen and faithful. Gary, this will be the one hundred forty-four thousand. But 144,000 are on the earth. But when he's coming back, they're going to come back from heaven with him? Oh, they'll be here on the earth. You read chapter 14. These 144,000 join Jesus wherever he goes. That's in chapter 14. You read chapter 17. Who's with him? The 144,000. I think the church will be with him when they come back. Because they're going to be riding white horses clothed in white. Now, you don't think the 144,000 are on the white horses, do you? All right. Can you be with somebody without being present with them? Or do you, in other words, with meaning in the same? It says they follow him wherever he goes. All right. We'll have to look at that. When it says um, they will combine with one another within the station of man, is that the Nephilim? Possibly. I think that could be. Uh, here again, they were asking whether that was the, the Nephilim. That we're going. Uh, let's mark real quick.
0: You know, uh, actually, the, the framework of the architecture that started with Woodrow
1: Wilson with the League of Nations. The League of Nations. You're right. precursor to the, the UN. But also, what's interesting to me is that this subtle surrender of sovereignty yeah. that's transpiring, and you know, you get to the Ten Kings, and then they throw it all on the antichrist It it also tells me that the, the world economically is probably going to be in to where it will be easy for them to throw the sovereignty of this miracle. He's got to help us. He's the only one who can help us. It'll be just like Hitler in Germany. You don't know the chaos in Germany and the Weimar Republic before. But anyway, there are several other things that are, that are tracking, I think, towards a one world system. You have this hacking and fraud that's become extremely sophisticated and it's going to have to be dealt with, where one crazy can control something that's very important. Yep, you have the economic sanctions that are commonplace today and a a new way of fighting. And you have the TV and the Internet. There was a time when the Bible said everybody will see it, like they'll see the two witnesses laying there dead in Jerusalem. And people would scoff, there's no way everybody can see it. Who's going to be taking them all over there? Of course, they didn't know about TV and the Internet then. Now, with those things in place, everybody can see it. So, that's number five, this makings of a one world government. Number six is the return of the Jewish people to the promised land. The return of the Jewish people, that started in 1948, and then it passed an important milestone in 1967. What happened in 1967? They took Jerusalem. Jesus promises that this is a sign or a marker. If you look in Matthew 24, he says, learn a parable. So now he's speaking in a parable in Mount of Olives. Learn a parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, who is he comparing this fig tree to? Israel. When you see Israel starting to grow and starting to bud, that means the time is near. That means things are happening. Now, it's interesting because once, see, he makes it clear who this fig tree is then. It starts explaining other things. Well, what other things? A lot of people don't understand. Earlier in Matthew, in verse 21, you know what? In the, when I learned it, first in the King James, it said, And Jesus cursed the fig tree. Cursed maybe is not the best word to use. But look at this passage. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it. And he found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do, not only not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even you will say this mountain be taken up cast to sea, and it will happen. Now, what is this fig tree talking about? It's talking about Israel. Was Israel when Jesus came a large tree with many leaves? Yes. Did they have any fruit? Were they even interested in sharing the good news of the coming Messiah? Among themselves or even with the Gentiles or Samaritans? Absolutely not. Not about to. And in fact, you're breaking the law, they would say, if you were. Sharing with Gentiles, conforting with Gentiles or Samaritans. We don't allow that. We're proper Jewish people. We want to please God, they would say. Now, understand as this goes, that Israel's duty, as God assigned it, was Threefold. That was his duty. Threefold. Number one, to be a repository of God's word. Number two, to disseminate his gospel message throughout the world. Number three, to be the progenitor of the Messiah who will bless all of mankind. That was promised to Abraham in, Abraham, uh, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 12. 12-3 to be specific, my walking concordance tells me. So... Here's, here's what we need to understand. Did the Jews do well in relation to being the repository of God's word? I would say partially. Who saved them? The Essenes. If they hadn't put aside all those Dead Sea Scrolls. But how about number two? Spreading the gospel. No. Complete failure. Complete Number three, being the one to be recognizing the Messiah coming and be able to share him with all the world. No, not at all. They didn't even recognize him, right? They failed. So what did God do? He said, I'm taking you, Israel, and I'm putting you on a shelf. And you're not going to be the one I'm using anymore until the last seven years. And so they're out, the church is in, and the church now, has done a much better job at God's word, a much better job at recognizing and promoting the Messiah, and is spreading the gospel. And so this tree pictures Israel. Now, about the Jews returning to the land, look again in Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-one. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Right before the end of the age, there will be a rapid spike of increasing Jewish return to the homeland. Why? Because we see anti-Semitism growing, and it's going to become more and more difficult. And they know one place where there's not any anti-Semitism is Israel. And so they'll go back. And that's coming. We're seeing it all the time. And it's, it's a perfect sign that the end times are upon us. Yes. I think it's also a trap that um, the Antichrist tells them they'll be safe here so he can draw them all in. Well, you're right that, that he is going to make a treaty with them and then he's going to breach it. But... The next sign I want you to see, number seven, goes together with that as the Jews returning to the land, and that's the Jewish people's ability to rapidly rebuild their temple. Rebuild their temple. Now, uh, some of you may not know this, but the plans, the drawings, the specifications have already been finalized and approved for the temple. The materials have already be, been accumulated. The furniture has already been Fabricated except for one piece. You can fabricate all of the furniture that you need, whether it's the altar of incense or the table of showbread or the golden lampstand. You can do all of that, but you cannot fabricate the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant has three things in it that you can't reproduce. What are those three things? Tablets of the Ten Commandments. A pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded. Those three things. But they have located the Ark of the Covenant. They know where it is. And they can bring it out when they need to. One other thing that's interesting to see. And you can go back and get more on this if you want to. In one of our, the last three lessons of our Daniel series. And you can find that on our our website. But one of the things... They need a red heifer. They got to have a red heifer. And when I say a red heifer, according to their rules, it has to be a perfect red heifer. You find one white hair on that calf, they're out. I think they have found five, and Texas, and transported them over to Israel. And they've got them. You know, it's amazing. Why couldn't they find a red heifer before that? Because God didn't want them to find one, didn't have one. Who controls the color of the hair on those heifers? God does, of course. Now there's five. You see, yes? I've heard, and I don't know if this is correct, but part of the reason that things are going on in the Ukraine and whatnot. God has a way of getting the Jews to move to Israel, whether it's the easy way or the hard way. Easy way or the hard way. And we're going to get to that here in just a second, as you're going to see. Yep. The thing is, I've heard that they've already started training the priests. They have. I've already started training the priests on how to do these sacrifices, how to do all the things they need to do in that temple. And they're very exacting and specific. And. They have been trained. And I've even seen videos of it. Sadducees are back because they're the ones that interviewed the Messiah. Well, then the Sadducees are back, I guess. But let's look at the next one, number eight, a coalition of Russia, Turkey, and Iran. This is spoken of in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It refers first to Gog, which is interesting. Maybe five years ago... This prophecy could not have been fulfilled because Gog involved three areas, Russia, Kazakhstan, which Russia now controls, but it didn't control the Ukraine because Eastern Ukraine was part of Gog. Is it part of, is Eastern Ukraine part of Ukraine anymore? Oh, yes. Yes. You begin to see what's happening. So that's Gog. In addition, it speaks of the ancient land of Rosh, which correlates with modern-day Iran, and Meshach and Tubal, which represent Turkey. And these three will join together to attack Israel in the end times. How do I know that? Because I can read Ezekiel 38, 1 through 4, where it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog and the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against them, and saying, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O God, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out, all of your army horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Now, why would Russia... Want to have an all-out. This is calling for an all-out attack. Why would they want an all-out attack upon Israel? Well, there's a reason. Number one, Russia's economy is almost completely controlled by oil and natural gas. And they have set up pipelines that do what? They transport natural gas to where? Europe. Does that give them some control yeah. of Europe? Sure. Can they say, how cold do you want to be this winter? Sure. Well, then I want you to do this. But who has now found large reserves in the, in the, underneath the Mediterranean Sea off their coast? Israel. 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 And are they bringing those reserves online? Yes. yes, they are. And who would be the natural trading partner for them at that? Western Europe to undercut Russia's prices. How will Russia feel about that? In fact, they will become quite angry. Uh, that course greatly harms Russian economics interests. Even doing that even has the ability to uh, to the ability to debilitate Russia's geopolitical stability. And there you go. We're seeing it coming about in our lifetimes. Number nine, the emergence of Sheba and Dedan. The emergence, there are two separate mentions of the origins of Sheba and Dedan in the Old Testament. Two separate, so we're going to have to determine which one you're talking about. You say there's two Sheba and Dedans around? Yeah, that just means that some two people had the same name. There's another guy who's sitting right back there, his name is Doug. But we need to, how did they refer to know the difference in older times, times of the patriarchs. Uh, for example, uh, Sheban ben Ham. Sheban the son of Ham, for example. Uh, that's something they could do. Now, in Genesis 10, 6-8, it says, The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush were Sheba... And Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtaqah. And the sons of Ramah were Sheban and Deban. So this Sheban and Teban would be Hametic. Hametic, they would mean they descendants of descendants the, of the second son of Noah, which is Ham. But you go down to Genesis 25, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore to him Zimran, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shuah. And Jokshan's became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And thus the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lumenim. Now, what line was Abraham from? Ham, Shem, Japheth. Shem. He was the Semite. And this. Dedan and Sheba and Dedan are Semites, I'm convinced, because they're talking about this area where they lived in the Arabian Peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula. And the people of Shem and Dedan, spoken of in Ezekiel 38 and 39, are Semitic and not Hemetic, in my opinion. Now, you look at verse 13, it says, And Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, with all its villages, will say to you, have you come to capture spoil? Have you come to assemble your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, take away cattle and goods to capture great spoil? Understand some things. We got first these two, Sheba and Dedan, and then we got Tarkish. Now, we know a little bit about Tarshish because we've studied Joda. What did Jonah consider Tarshish to be? No. He wanted to go and have a long extended vacation there. That was to the west as far as he could go. That was west. So what is it saying here in the time of Ezekiel? I'm convinced that what this is saying is there's two groups who are complaining about what Russia, Turkey, and, and Persia or Iran are doing. They're complaining about it. And they're Sheba and Dedan and the West. Now, are they going to interfere with what Russia's doing? No. They're complaining about it, but they're not going to interfere. Have we seen stuff like that from our government today? Uh, Constantly, yes. But the question then comes back is who is Sheba and Dedan? And Sheba, Sheba and Dedan were inhabitants of the Arabian Peninsula. And they will oppose this Russian... So again, who is that? Let me tell you something. In March of 2016, let's look at this. There was a giant military exercise. Are you beginning to notice some of those flags there? In this joint... This was called Operation Northern Thunder. Took place in Saudi Arabia. Countries which joined the Saudis in this massive military exercise were the UAE... Jordan, Bahrain, Senegal, Sudan, Kuwait, Omar, Qatar, and others. And I just recently came across something that Amir Zafati reported. Now, some of you may not know Amir Zafati. He lives in Israel. He's very wise. He's very astute. I believe most everything he says, unless it is going to be, I think he has ties to the IMF. Ties to certain political leaders in Israel, but mostly ties to the Mossad. And that's where he gets his information. And he's a believer. And he is a believer, yes. And he said, he reported that Saudi Arabia has recently demanded that America guarantee its security and granted permission to develop a civilian nuclear program in exchange for a complete peace agreement with Israel. You think right before our election that somebody named who is in power and can make such a treaty or enter such treaty with Israel would like to do that? Knowing that maybe the Democratic Senate would not allow that to happen, but he could say, see, I'm bringing peace to Israel. Would you think somebody would like to do that? For political reasons only, knowing that it's not going to happen. So we begin to see... The line's being drawn for these very quickly. And finally, the last, the tenth thing, the emergence of a movement to promote a one-world religion. If you look in Revelation chapter 17, 1 through 2, then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on the many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wines of immorality. This harlot is defined as the end time as a one world religion, one world religion. God constantly speaks of you leave me, you're committing spiritual adultery, spiritual betrayer of the one who saved you. Uh, the waters on which she sits are the people of the world who worship at her feet, and the kings of the earth are those rulers uh, under the beast who turned over their power to him. And he will be using this religion to maintain his power during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And then at the middle, he will get rid of her and say, the, You should worship me. Is there any evidence of this common union? Now, we are way right past our time. And I guess we're just going to have to start there next time. And I'm sorry, but we're just, we're just long gone. All right, I've got a question. And this is a very important question to understand. We have a question for you too, Jim, in just a minute. But go ahead. Uh, I'm going to pray if you have to leave. But I've got an important question I'm going to a- ask in just a second. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time we could spend here studying your word. And I pray that you will help me to answer this question in exactly the right way you want it answered. And that I will speak in a way that it, in effect it comes from you. I pray these things in the name of your son Jesus in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Here is the question. Does everybody have a chance to be saved, regardless of race or what people may say. Now, let's let's make very certain. There is a passage that most of us know. It is John 3.16. And it says, God so loved the world. Now, who's excluded from the world? No one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever. Who does that exclude? Does that mean if you're white, you can't be saved? Does that mean if you're black, you can't be saved? Does that mean if you're Asian, you can't be saved? Or you're Latino, you can't be saved? No. He made everyone. He loves everyone. He says, but my love is demonstrated to you because while you were yet a sinner, my son died for you. Jesus died for everyone. There is no one who doesn't, the only one standing between you and the Lord God saving you is you. You must choose. Now, I don't want anybody to identify to me that you made this question in, the, in this group. But please come and talk to me afterwards if you ask this question. Because I want to share with you how you can come to know Jesus and know him for certain and be saved for eternity and spend all eternity with him. I want to do that.